What you choose to put on your calendar is what you think is important. And if you choose to let somebody else dictate your calendar or you choose to be blown around the wind like a plastic bag in the wind, then you won't be able to chart out the vision that you specifically want and you won't be able to control it. So if you want to value culture building, you have to allocate time to culture building. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. What's up, Manufacturing All-Stars, and welcome to the first ever episode of the Manufacturing Happy Hour podcast. I'm excited that you're here, and I'm even more excited to introduce you to this week's guest. We have an excellent show on the docket today featuring one of my longtime friends and mentors in the manufacturing industry, Dan Voigt, the CEO of Blendtec. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to make sure I provide a proper introduction to this podcast as a whole. As some of you may know, Manufacturing Happy Hour has been operating as an online video series for the past three years, largely covering technical topics in the automation industry. But throughout the course of that show, one thing became very clear. Automation and technology in general are only a couple of the many dynamics that impact the manufacturing sector. Especially in today's rapidly changing industrial environment, the issues and challenges facing manufacturers range from filling the workforce skills gap to preparing the next generation to lead this industry as baby boomers retire. There's a lot going on right now in this space, but on the plus side, there are a lot of smart people out there in this industry that know how to tackle these challenges and turn them into fantastic opportunities. And those are the people that are going to be sharing their wisdom with us on this podcast. Now, if you're wondering who I am, I'm basically your guide through these topics and conversations. If we're just meeting for the first time through the airwaves, or I guess the pod waves as we'll more appropriately call them, my name is Chris Lukey. I've been working in the manufacturing industry for over a decade, where I started on the plant floor as an engineer at Anheuser-Busch before making my way to where I am now at Rockwell Automation. As an engineer by degree, but a marketer at heart, I'm on a mission to make even the most complex topics in our industry current, cool, and approachable. With that said, today's episode is all about how manufacturers can create winning company cultures. Getting back to Dan Voigt, there is a very specific reason I tapped him on the shoulder to be our guest for this episode, and that's because I've seen how his company has grown over the past four plus years that I've been working with him, and a big part of that is a testament to his leadership and the culture that is so clearly and deeply ingrained at Blendtec. I mean, seriously, they are an industrial food processing equipment and technology company based in Northern California, and the fact that they're able to operate profitably in that environment should tell you that they're doing more than just a few things right. We're going to dive into all of this in just a second, but just so you have some idea of where this interview is going to take you, here are three things you can expect from today's show. First, you're going to get to hear Dan's story, from the experiences that shaped his interest in food at an early age to stepping up as a leader at Blendtec in the middle of the recession. Second, we take a deep dive into the company culture at Blendtec. Dan covers what it takes to consistently model the culture you want to create, how he carves out time to genuinely engage with his team, all the way to interviewing tips for determining whether someone's a mutual fit for your culture. Also, Dan's modest about this next point, but I will say in addition to being a great leader, he's also a bit of an athlete. So you'll hear plenty of athletic metaphors and stories to drive these points home. Finally, Dan shares some of the habits that help him set and communicate a vision for his company, but also habits that allow him to reach his full potential as a leader in and outside of work. This episode is jam-packed with resources, so if you hear any good nuggets of information that you want to dive into later, please know that all the resources we discuss in this episode are available on the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com. And now, it's time to get this show on the road. Let's head up to Blendtec in Santa Rosa, California to meet up with Dan Voigt. All right, Manufacturing All-Stars, here we go. 
Today's guest is no stranger to great food, regardless of the scale at which it's produced. He has a master's in food science and experience in food production, ranging from the Fortune 500 uh, to where he is now at Blendtec. And by the way, his master's certification also applies to his CrossFit accomplishments. On that note, his competitive spirit has given him a knack for achieving results in whatever role he's been in. And after starting his career as a technical services manager, Dan has moved through the ranks to become CEO of the company where he started and now leads one of the strongest teams I've come across in the manufacturing sector. Manufacturing All-Stars, please welcome Dan Voigt to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Good to see you, Dan. Thanks. Happy to be here. It's been a little while. It has. Yeah. It has. We, uh, we usually have some backpacking trips or some exercise things to catch up on. What's, what's shaking in that side of your world right well, now? Well, I never really have any shortage of stories on that front. I, okay. Last, last week, I, I went backpacking with uh, my daughters uh, on the Redwood Creek Trail mm. uh, up in Humboldt County. That was a fantastic trip. Uh, it's great. Cell phones don't work out there. Yes. So, yes. Uh, <laughs> I have not done. I'll be up in Eureka soon. I uh, think not for backpacking, but uh, Lost Coast was the. I think the last thing I really did up in Humboldt County. Got it. You've done that one before, right? I've done that. Did it with my daughter when she was six years old. All right. It was all right. That's that a, is that's a tough thing to do. No kidding. That'll. Uh, <laughs> well, you're you're shaping your company and you're shaping your kids well at uh. At, a, at an early age, no doubt. Now, I guess just to make sure folks know how to connect with you guys, so Blend Tech, and that's Blend without a D. That's and, correct. Uh, that's correct. There is a there is a Blend Tech. Yes. It is not us. Right. People frequently confuse that because of their very successful Will It Blend videos. It's a great marketing campaign. It really is. It really is. Um, but uh, that isn't us. Uh, our Will It Blend would be very different because our machines are sure. A hundred or a thousand times the size. Did so. you ever try to approach them about some collaboration? <laughs> I did, and I think for uh, legal reasons, it's not worth discussing here. Mm. So, <laughs> all right, that's fair. Well, so Blendtec, B-L-E-N-T-E-C-H dot com. You can also find Blendtec Corporation on LinkedIn. And uh, to really dive into the conversation, we'll we'll set the stage. We're here in your office in Santa Rosa, California, in the middle of Sonoma County, mm-hmm. and since. We deal in a technical industry. I always like to make it basic for a non-technical individual that might be listening and learning what Blendtec does for the first time. So let's say you're at a winery in Sonoma County and you're meeting with someone in a completely different industry and they're like, Dan, what do you do? What what do you tell them? Yeah. Wow. Well, that question comes up a lot uh, mm-hmm. and um, it's fun to talk about. I think I maybe can start by talking about what, what I'm a little interested in and then transition into what we do. I've always been fascinated by the process of cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, what our company does is we work with uh, folks who have uh, large-scale cooking, mixing, or food chilling mm-hmm. challenges or problems. Mm-hmm. And we work together with them to develop a process, develop equipment, uh, develop systems, mm-hmm. um, build those systems, uh, automate those systems, start them up, uh, and sometimes optimize or improve systems that are already uh, in place. So we, we specialize in certain types of foods, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. Uh, there are a lot of the things that you might have in restaurants that you, you, know, you might think that they're made there. They're often not. They're made in, in central facilities. doesn't mean they're uh, lower uh, quality or anything like that. In fact, they're you know, high-quality foods uh, produced with care. But uh, we take those processes and we find a way to uh, scale them up and, and produce mm-hmm. them at a larger scale. One of our customers uh, used the term artisan industrial, uh, mm-hmm. and that's, uh, that's a phrase that I, I like. But we, we build these machines. We design and build these things. We apply the, the food science expertise, the food engineering expertise, the mechanical engineers, the electrical engineers, mm-hmm. um, uh, and then the field teams that started up, as well as the fabricators. And that's what we do. Artisan industrial is a term I don't think I've ever heard before. Yeah. Was that what drew you here initially, or what, what got you passionate about food the way you are? Because I think yeah. a lot of people, when they think of food, they're thinking either you know something farm-to-table, really specialty, or something prepared on a mass scale, but that you'd maybe not necessarily the best food in the world you've sure. ever had. But you seem to have this perception of quality across the entire scale. Yeah, so art is industrial isn't what... what uh got me here, but it certainly Mm -hmm. helps keep me uh, excited about what's going on in the food space. Mm -hmm. To answer your question about what got me here, that's a a fun thing to talk about. I grew up in Southern California initially, but my father worked in the sugar business. My grandfather was a food scientist, Mm -hmm. and um, he worked in a company uh, in Central Valley 
called uh, Patterson Frozen Foods that was around back then. It's not around anymore, but it was a huge uh, frozen uh, vegetable factory in Patterson, California. Okay. Made a lot of the bird's eye products, things like that, back Mm -hmm. in the 60s and 70s. Got it. Uh, Would that have been before my time? I don't know if I'm familiar with yeah, Bird's Eye. It, okay. It, it All might. right. Well, All you right. must have seen Bird's Eye frozen vegetables. Maybe they don't sell them anymore. Maybe. I don't know. I just need to keep a better eye out for it. Hopefully some of our listeners. Maybe you don't shop in the frozen vegetable. I mean, that's a whole other topic of conversation <laughs> because I bet I'm going to go off on that for a second. <laughs> go for it. A lot of people tend to think that things like fresh vegetables necessarily are uh, – healthier for you or better for you. And that's mm-hmm. not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Sometimes fresh fruits and vegetables are picked before they're ripe or before they're ready. Mm-hmm. And then they're put through a long supply chain system and mm-hmm. they may not necessarily have the vitamins or nutrients that sometimes frozen fruits and vegetables have. Mm-hmm. So anyway, just a little sidebar of a situation. It's not always the case that quote unquote processed foods aren't as good. It is sometimes the case. It mm-hmm. is not always the case. And understanding your food and understanding what makes your food healthy or quality or tasty. And I think that's something that people should, should do. It's part of living. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to go back to, you asked about my, my background. My, my grandfather moved down to Guatemala okay. in, in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually lived in Nicaragua for a while. And of course that was an exciting place during that period of time. I think uh, mm-hmm. Central America, a lot going on historically. In the mid 1980s, my family uh, piled into a Volkswagen van, drove through Mexico and mm-hmm. uh, moved to Guatemala City. Okay. We lived right downtown, got an apartment near my grandfather, wow. and, and he had uh, set up shop doing uh, consulting, building food factories in Central mm-hmm. and South America. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, my, my mom helped me with my schooling because uh, uh, it was important to you know, not lose track of that type of stuff mm-hmm. um, you know, during the days. But when there was time, and it was often, I got to go to the office with my grandpa, mm-hmm. and um, he took me to food factories mm-hmm. and this was at a really young age and it was uh easy for me to be really inspired by the things that he was able to do he built big ice cream factories and uh you know we'd go through the freezer and he let me pick out what i wanted out of the ice cream bins in the back you know mm-hmm. in the storage and we'd go through jelly factories and he'd say hey danny this is how you this is how you make a jelly line you know hey danny this is how you make an ice cream line and cool and uh he had a room in his house where mm-hmm. he had I don't know, knickknacks, paraphernalia that he had collected from the different places that he'd been when he built food factories or started them up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a masks on the wall from different tribal regions of different areas of the world mm-hmm. and things like that. It's just mm-hmm. really exotic. And mm-hmm. uh, we, we'd sit in that room from time to time and he'd tell me stories and they just yeah. seemed larger than life. And I, I think I thought, I know I thought that, uh, wow, if I, if I became a food scientist, if I studied food, I'd get to have some pretty great experiences too because everybody eats. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's just one thing that is a shared human experience. No matter what's going on, you wake up, you're going to be hungry today. Yeah. And um, so it unites people and it mm-hmm. gives you an opportunity to add value anywhere you go. Mm-hmm. Um, and those were good times sitting there with my grandpa. He had, he, you know, we, we sat there listening to music, talking about food factories, about food. strangest things. So when I went to... Uh, college, uh, yeah. you know, even going back to high school, I already knew what I was going to do. Sure. And I don't think pe- people do that very often that they know they want to be a food scientist. At, right. You know, in their it teens. sounded like it was pretty ingrained it's, in you for a very long period. Of it's time. a little, it's a little strange. And, and I know that, but, um, in any case, uh, I, I went to Oregon state, I studied food science and, um, I got to work for some great people there mm-hmm. and, uh, I got to meet this company, um, you know, after, a couple different roles and, you know, some vegetable factories and some fruit factories. Um, but, uh, they gave me the opportunity here to, uh, demonstrate equipment mm-hmm. and do experimental equipment startups around the world. That was my first formal series of assignments mm-hmm. here. So I, I did some pretty interesting projects early on things like, uh, starting up as far as we know, the, the was at the time, the world's only fully continuous, um, uh, refrigerated sushi line. So it made uh, okay. nigiri blocks and things like that. The actual sushi rice, mm-hmm. um, no excess water, far greener technology, way ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Oddly, that went to England of all places. You would, would have thought it would have gone somewhere else, but that, yeah. that's where it started. <laughs> and um, uh, starting up things like um, industrial stir frying equipment outside of Melbourne and uh, ah, many, many other things, vacuum cooling technologies in, in, in Denmark and um, Oh, boy, I could come up with some pretty big lists of, of the places that I've done startups and 
whether it's South Korea or Central America, uh, Europe. But in any case, uh, the exposure was fantastic. And indeed, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot going on in food around the world. Yeah. So that's how I got into it. Artisan industrial is probably a a newer concept that I've heard talking about. And I think it's more trending along the lines of maybe, maybe people tend to think some negative thoughts about large-scale food production mm-hmm. from time to time, maybe mm-hmm. more on the coasts than in the Midwest. And yeah, it's probably true. But it's a it's a really unfair, um, it's a really unfair overgeneralization and a broad sweeping thing that's not correct. Um, mm-hmm. Because there's a there's a whole lot of people that care passionately about what we eat mm-hmm. and what they put into that. Just because they make a lot of it doesn't mean they're careless. Yeah. So uh, we like to help that. We yeah. like to we like to help feed the world. Well, that term just stuck out because I've, I've, I've heard you speak before. I know you're really passionate about food, and it certainly comes across in that story from Southern California to Guatemala to Oregon. Man, you've, you've been around, and you had, it, it, you had that food heritage running in your family for a long time. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm curious. So we, th- where that story kind of ended was while you were on your first stint at Blendtec. Mm-hmm. And you had done some other work in addition to that before before coming back here. But, you know, was there a point in your career, we're going we're to switch a little from, from that background to kind of the leadership topic, but when did you know you wanted to be the leader of this company? When did I know I wanted to be the leader? Uh, that uh, realization probably began to emerge during the recession uh, okay. period that occurred. Prior to that, in, in truth, I had no desire mm-hmm. to uh, ever seek any kind of a significant leadership role. Okay. Why was that? Why did I not have a desire? Yeah. I'm not sure. Okay. Um, there was no appeal, and uh, there there's no specific, I don't know, desire to be, I don't know. I don't, I don't particularly believe too much in hierarchy t- structures. Sure. I think that titles are maybe useful for identifying what a person is responsible for mm-hmm. within a company, but it does not under any circumstances, you know, correlate with, uh, you know, the value that that person brings to society mm-hmm. or their job. And mm-hmm. uh, every job is important. And the idea that um, one person is, is better or above another, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't like it. Yeah. Um, where I felt like I wanted to move into leadership was I saw within a team that I cared about, within a company that I cared about, um, a need for somebody to step in and, mm-hmm. um, you know, help transition. So the, the, the owner of the company, still the owner, mm-hmm. um, uh, was hoping to move out of active operations um, as his um, age, uh, uh, you know, was uh, starting to, to, to suggest. And mm-hmm. um, somebody needed to step in. And it was easy for me to look around and say, well, if not me, who? Right. Uh, uh, wasn't a specific goal. It was mm-hmm. a, a, an, an opportunistic uh, need that um, I stepped into. Does that sure. make sense? Yeah, I, and and I think if I, if I'm hearing you right, I think we talked a little bit about kind of that dichotomy between being a manager and being a leader mm-hmm. um, in that regard, because managers are what I usually associate with titles, and that doesn't necessarily mean you have the influence or the willingness to serve in a greater capacity. Right. And I'm I'm curious, was there a moment, because you mentioned the recession, was there a moment during the recession where you're like, I'm the guy that needs to step up? Is there a story behind that where you saw an opportunity to really provide more to the company than you had b- done before? Well, that, I think that was very instinctual, Okay, um, that there were just things that were happening that needed somebody uh, to work on them. And, and I saw issues that I could address, and those mm-hmm. issues had significant impact on um, really saving jobs. So there was a period of time where the gross profit margins were suffering because productivity wasn't, Mm -hmm. uh, not because people weren't working, because the orders weren't there, you know? Right. And um, so profits were tough and and businesses Mm -hmm. survive on cash flow. And that's just the reality Mm -hmm. of the situation. So uh, we frequently, uh, as we looked for opportunities to cut costs or it was really, hey, if we can save this money over here, that's half of this person's job. Mm-hmm. Or if we can save this here, then that's that's the other half of this person's job, and then they mm-hmm. get to stay. And we knew that in a company like ours, the value that the customer pays for when they buy our goods or our services is the experience that mm-hmm. our people have. Yeah. And so you cannot approach a situation like this with a with a cold mindset of now how many numbers do I need to, you know, reduce to get back to the 
you know, solvency I want to have. Mm-hmm. You need to approach it with, uh, now how do I protect my team members who are really almost my family members? Yeah. Because when the recession ends and every recession is hard or, you know, uh, in its own way, but um, it, when it ends and they all do, mm-hmm. the business comes back and that comes back to the food thing. No matter what day of the week it is, you're going to eat and the right. population's growing mm-hmm. and you need to produce more food tomorrow than you did today. Mm-hmm. And that's just how life's going to be. So the demand's going to come back. Yeah. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. So it's really about protecting and preserving the mm-hmm. the people that matter, that got you there in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how we approached it. So I don't know if I directly answered your question, but that's how we looked at it. We wanted to save our people. We wanted to protect our people. We wanted to... to you know, preserve our company. Mm-hmm. And um, I saw ways of helping to achieve some of that. So that's what I focused on. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because I think that ties in with one one of the themes of our conversation. Today, and that's really the culture mm-hmm. at Blend Tech. And I think when that's your attitude at a leadership level, that would spread throughout the rest of the company where it's like, hey, this is a tough time, but we're going to find a way for all of us to get through it. Right. I'm curious on on that note. Let's let's take a step back into culture a little bit. What what would you say? Obviously, making it through a tough time like that in a recession. But what would you say really characterizes the culture here at Blend Tech? Well, I think the culture is uh, exceedingly innovative, mm-hmm. um, particularly in an industry that is not very forward thinking. From time sure. to time, the food industry can be very traditionalist mm-hmm. for good and bad. Mm-hmm. But our company really, you know, ignites a fire in people. Um, our, that's what our culture does to, to really find new ways to do something. Mm-hmm. And, and as you walked up to my office, you know, you, you got the wall of patents on the left-hand side and, mm-hmm. and I think you remember seeing that, but that is an embodiment of just the way we behave and the way we operate. We're trying to find new ways to do things, trying mm-hmm. to, trying to do things differently and better. That's who we are. So, um, I think that's a, a huge component of the culture. Mm-hmm. And to go back to what we said before, if you're too rigid in the structure or too much hierarchy, mm-hmm. it's hard for those innovative ideas to be talked about because they don't necessarily filter up and down chains of communication. It, you may, you know, you may need to have ideation sessions with a much broader group of people to come up with ideas to improve something. And mm-hmm. and and if you have I don't know, politicking or, or too much hierarchy structure, it doesn't really bode well for um, the creation of new innovation, in our opinion. I'm, I'm curious, was because um, I, I think innovation and the ability for ideas to spread and be shared is a huge indicator of a strong culture. Would you say it was always that way, or was there an evolution at Blendtec where that has be, that where your culture has evolved over the years? Uh, no, I think that I, I think that's the culture that that Daryl, the founder, created. I mean, Daryl, the mm-hmm. founder of the company, was the inventor of the mechanical grape harvester. Okay, you know, most of those patents on the wall, you know, they're him. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's no mistaking that they were an innovation powerhouse for for you know decades before yeah. I joined the company. Mm-hmm. I just got the opportunity to work in a team that helped me understand how that worked. Sure. If I've added any any layer to it, it's mm-hmm. finding a way to have that same dynamic with a bigger team mm-hmm. and do it with the types of technologies that are emerging today mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, 30 years ago, it was about, hey, what new machine can we build? Mm-hmm. What new manufacturing method can we make to to make this stainless steel machine do something, you know, faster, better or whatever? Mm-hmm. Now it's about how do we... How do we make it more usable? How do we make it uh, last longer? How do we bring technology into it in terms of automation and uh, that type of thing? Yeah. If that makes sense. No, I, I definitely follow it. It sounds like that culture has always had that really strong baseline. And there are little things you can add to that along the way. I'm, I'm curious. I'd like to get your take on this because I think there are some companies that don't necessarily have that strong culture from the get-go. Sure. How, do you, how does one impact culture big or small in uh over time or in a short period of time well i all right so impact culture i'm gonna i want to write that down and i'm gonna address it but as you were saying that what came to my mind is the transition of leadership from daryl to me mm-hmm. was probably the typical type of uh, precarious moment in a mm-hmm. in a company's history where those cultures can be lost right and if you're if you're adding on top of that a growth curve mm-hmm. because you're bringing in you know new employees and new customers 
the potential to have an erosion in culture or a loss in culture mm-hmm. is really, really high because there's a whole lot of new people and mm-hmm. there's a whole lot of new challenges. Right. So really the, the challenge was how do you build on, improve upon an already good culture while handling a transition across generations? Mm-hmm. And that in and of itself is a very unique challenge um, because you have people that come from broadly different backgrounds. Um, you know, they're, they, they were raised in different environments, you know, uh, somebody in their, in their seventies sees the world a little bit differently than somebody in their twenties. That's just the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you got to bring those people together and you have to, to, to leverage the talents of all the people, whether it's mm-hmm. the experience or the energy or whatever. Mm-hmm. So those were potentially precarious moments. And I think if I have one thing I'm most proud of, it's, I feel as though we navigated that moment. Well, yeah. How does one impact culture? There's a, a, a video uh, that I, I, I found and uh, was shown in one of the uh, uh, leadership development um, uh, programs that I was involved in. Mm-hmm. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Cameron Harold. He was the, um, I don't know what his exact title was. I think he was the chief operating officer of 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Okay. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. Yeah, I, I, I might have his title wrong. He might have been the CEO. He does leadership talks and um, and I've read his book, Double Double. It's a great book, but... Um, he has done this talk over the years, which you can find on YouTube, where he um, presents what it's like to change a company culture or set the company culture. And, it, and he uses a picture of, of a lone guy dancing at a concert. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen this video? I don't know if I have, but I can, I'm, I'm visualizing what you're saying. Yeah, so, so just picture, picture you know, one guy at you know, a giant summer music festival yeah. Over there on the grass, you know, going crazy, probably with some jam band going on in the background, mm-hmm. maybe a 10-minute song where the guitar is going a little bit too long. He's over there just, like, dancing and dancing and dancing. And, you know, at first, he looks crazy, right? Mm-hmm. But in that video, Cameron takes little sections of the of the video across time. And, and you know, at first, it's, it's just the one guy. And then yeah. a couple more join him. Okay. Right. I think I've seen. And then you know, like then a couple this. guys leave, but then a couple yeah. more come back, and yeah. And then he points out that after you know ten minutes, you know, like five thousand people get up and start dancing. Cool. So, what is that? It's modeling the behavior at the leadership level that represents the culture that you want to build. Yeah. And doing it every day. Mm-hmm. And at first, it feels awkward. You're all alone. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you just keep doing it. Because you know that it's right, mm-hmm. and uh, not everybody likes it, right? And that's kind of the point, mm-hmm. because the objective is to identify who be- people who believe what you believe, mm-hmm. who want to build what you want to build, right? And um, want to be part of that, right? And so you know it's divisive mm-hmm. in a good way, mm-hmm. but it has to be approached with um, integrity mm-hmm. um, and honesty. Mm-hmm. So the leaders have to make a conscious effort to become what they want the culture to be. Mm-hmm. And it starts there. Yeah. And that's probably where a lot of people struggle. Well, I like what you said about how, or at least some of the way I interpreted it is with, with dancing, not everyone's going to want to dance with you, but right. the people that do want to dance with you, those are the people that you want on your team. That's they're right. They're the ones that buy into that vision. That you that's have. right. And, it, and it's okay that not everybody wants to, because there's, there's a place for everybody in the world. Right. But right. So you gotta, you gotta put it out there what you want the company to be culturally mm-hmm. and strategically and then keep modeling that behavior mm-hmm. and keep sending that message. I, I put out in front of me um, some of the things that, that I, I produce. Here's a, a brochure um, mm-hmm. that we put out among our, our staff and we hand to people okay. um, when they when they start. This is what our company is. This is what we do. I've actually used this in interviews before. Okay. Um, not always, but sometimes uh, in an interview, put this down and say, hey, you know, this is what we're doing. You want to be part of this? I'll yeah. be back in 15 minutes. Why don't you read it and tell me how you fit into this? How does that work? I'm curious how that, that approach works. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, I've, I've done it a few times on a few specific positions. And okay. um, uh, it's been an interesting dialogue. I mean, the, I, yeah. if, you're, uh, if you write a detailed description of where you want to go as a company mm-hmm. and you make it compelling mm-hmm. and then you share that with a lot of people, mm-hmm. you get the opportunity to identify who wants to do that too. Right. And if you keep it up in your head or you, you know, you, you don't communicate it effectively or in a compelling manner mm-hmm. or model the behavior, if you send a conflicting right. message, you're going to get, you're going to get a random 
uh, set of people or, or you're not going to be able to filter out the people that really want to do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. No, a- absolutely. I mean, one as an outsider to blend tech, anytime I walk in the door, I can kind of feel the energy at the company. Yeah. Like, and I think that's what you want. Like when, especially when you're coming in for an interview, like, yeah. and I think with any interview, it's pretty, I don't want to say it's easy, but you can kind of tell whether someone's bought in or not, or right. would jump on into it. Right, right. No, I love the interview tactic. I know we've got some other things floating around here on the table. But for those of you listening, we're going to take a quick break. we got some more stories coming up. we got some more tactical advice from Dan. We'll be right back. This episode of Manufacturing Happy Hour is sponsored by Audible. Audible is the world's largest library of audiobooks and other spoken word entertainment. And as someone that's constantly traveling, it's how I keep up on my reading and stay sharp even when I'm on the go. Best of all, since you're a listener of this podcast, we're giving you a free audiobook if you sign up for Audible at audibletrial.com slash happyhourpod. Why Audible? Well, let me add a bit of context through a quick personal story. As a sales guy and a frequent flyer, I spend a lot of time in transit, and Audible is the platform I use to make sure that time doesn't go to waste. And it's great that I get to pick a new book every month. It's actually pretty timely that Dan Voigt is being featured on our show today, because Dan and I have been exchanging book recommendations for years, and one of my most recent listens on Audible was a book he recommended called High Altitude Leadership by Chris Werner and Don Schminke. The book is exactly what it sounds like. It teaches important business leadership lessons by drawing parallels to the expeditions Chris and Don led summiting some of the world's tallest peaks. If you're interested in hearing how leading a team through a deadly storm on Mount Everest requires the same humility you need to succeed in your job, then this book is for you. It's kind of an intense read relative to your average business self-help book, but it'll definitely keep you engaged and walking away with more than a few tools for your leadership toolbox. So, if you want to access awesome titles like this one and millions of other books, then make sure to start your risk-free trial of Audible through Manufacturing Happy Hour. Again, to claim your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash happyhourpod. And now, back to our conversation with Dan Voigt. We are back for the second round of the interview and and Dan I always like to kick off the second part with with a story to to get folks back into it. So, you do can, I have to tell the story or you do? I'm no, I'm going to let oh. you tell the story. No, this 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 is not the this is not about me. This is this is about Dan and Blend. I was looking here. forward to leaning back and just hearing a story. Mm, I don't know. That might, if you start a podcast, I'll happily show up sometime <laughs> and let you lean back, but at least for the time being, you are, you have the spotlight. So, um Got well, it. well with that, you know, you gave a great example like when when you were coming into your leadership role when the recession was taking place. I'm curious, and, and there's a second part to this question, but the first part is, tell me about a time where, um, or maybe the better way to start is like I feel like the indicator of a company's culture is how well they perform in a time of crisis. Mm-hmm. Can you give me another example of where the strength of your cultural culture just really shined through during a challenging situation? Sure. There are many, but I think there's one specific day mm-hmm. uh, the week that followed that uh, I don't know that I'll ever get eclipsed with respect to uh, how people came together and took care of each other. Mm-hmm. And that's when the fires hit in Santa Rosa. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was chaos that day. Uh, I don't know exactly how many homes were lost, um, mm-hmm. but you know, we, many of the people in our company lost their homes, including our director of operations and the, mm-hmm. and the, and the owner. And, uh, we had a full factory at that time too. So mm-hmm. not only do we have um, loss of homes, um, we weren't sure if there was loss of life. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had um, business issues to deal with as well because mm-hmm. you know not everybody lives in Santa Rosa and customers still want us to deliver and perform. On the first day of, uh, uh, of the fire, um, people came together, the accounting team quickly pulled up a list of all of our employees and, and mm-hmm. tracked who was safe, mm-hmm. you know, uh, who, who couldn't come in because there were road closures everywhere and there were mm-hmm. all sorts of different things going on. And then within about 24 hours, we began to make a plan for how were we going to get back into production. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, we had a, a huge shipment um, mm-hmm. that was scheduled to ship the week after that um, mm-hmm. was occurring. It was actually down in our final assembly area. Mm-hmm. It was a multi-million dollar um, uh, system designed to produce school lunches. It was mm-hmm. going to be installed in the Midwest. Okay. And um, we needed to figure out how to come together when this was all coming, uh, you know, going on around us and still get production done. And, and the company didn't have to ask or instruct anybody to come into work. They mm-hmm. just did because they knew it's what we needed to do. Yeah. So if, if, if you were in a position where, you, you know, you were not safe or you couldn't come in uh, or you needed to take care of your family, those people didn't come in. But mm-hmm. the people that weren't um, in those situations came in and filled in for others. Yeah. Uh, and that meant other people stepping up and doing jobs they don't normally do or stepping in to make sure that, that this shipment came out. Mm-hmm. It was really an all hands on deck moment, um, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we pulled it off, and we got we got the shipments. I, we might have been seven or eight days behind uh, the original schedule, but given what occurred, oh yeah, it's it's unreal. That is um, that's un- yeah, like you said, unreal is the exact word I was going to yeah. use too. And and I don't you know I, I think it was a hard moment for everybody, but not because the company made it a burden. Uh, I, my perspective was that this is what people wanted to do. Yeah, they, they knew that at the end of the day. The business is important to all of us, and mm-hmm. um, if we're going to, you know, rebuild our, our homes and our community and things like that. Business is the is one of the the, the bedrocks, is one of the foundations upon which we we have the money and the and the ability yeah. to do that type of thing. So, mm-hmm. keeping ourselves healthy, yeah, uh, was going to help build our our future. So that's I think maybe the most um, compelling moment with respect to demonstrating what a, a, a caring, connected culture looks like. No kidding. And I don't think I'll come up with a better story than that. No, you. I, I was <laughs> I was going to say that that kind of tops it. In fact, I, I wanted to ask you when were you when were you most proud of your team? But I have a feeling that might be it. But I don't want to put words in your mouth. I I it was I don't know. They've got many. I, I don't know that I can rate moments of pride on a on a scale of you sure. know, one to ten. Uh, that was certainly a, a proud moment. I mean, there's yeah. been technical achievements where I've stood back and I've looked at a line that we've created or or a technology that we've created, and I'll I'll just say, wow, look what mm-hmm. they did. And those those moments tend to tend to happen after the lights turn off in the factory. Everybody's gone. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm walking through the factory. It's yeah. quiet. You can hear the. The echoes of your footsteps, mm-hmm. um, and I think you know the kind of feeling I'm talking about. And then you walk over yeah. to final assembly, and you see these machines. Sometimes they're, you know, 20 feet tall, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, millions of dollars worth of equipment, all, you know, carefully connected, integrated, designed to work together. And uh, you say, "Wow, look what we created!" And when you do the math on how much, uh, how much food it produces, and how many people get fed by those systems, it, it, you, you kind of get awestruck, mm-hmm. um, things making 10, 20,000 pounds per hour running 24 hours a day or nearly 20 hours a day. They got to stop and clean them. But, uh, you know, you're talking mm-hmm. a lot of food. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're talking 200,000 pounds in a day, break that down into meals. Mm-hmm. We're feeding significant portions of the population with the technology that we create. I think that's a big part with manufacturing you really need to look at what it impacts at the end of it because right. you know you could show up to blendtec for example and be welding equipment but it's really what is that equipment going to do how is that going to impact humanity that, right that really really does the trick i love your example of walking through the plant and having that that or i should say the the facility and having that sense of pride you know how do you instill that vision in others so that other people feel that same sense and have that same sense of the commitment to the company. Well, I think they, um, that, that goes back to the beginning of finding people that, you know, are inspired by that in the first place. But mm-hmm. it, it, I think that means acknowledging the, the work that people do along the way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I do my best to do that. I'm, I'm sure I can do a better job cause I'm human, but mm-hmm. you know, that means maybe walking into somebody's office and saying, Hey, great job on, yeah. You know, great job on whatever whatever specific role you had in it. And from a leadership perspective, means genuinely understanding what that person did. It cannot be an artificial compliment. Artificial mm-hmm. compliments actually do right. more, more damage than they do uh, help. Sure. So genuinely understand what they did. Uh, genuinely care about the uh, the role that they played, mm-hmm. and then give a genuine compliment. And and those are I think appreciated to a degree mm-hmm. that I don't know. 
nobody wants a hey good job and, and it comes across right. as phony yeah an attaboy where you just slap him on the back and you're you're out of there <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous yeah yeah mm-hmm. it, it needs to you got to have a little integrity uh, mm-hmm. and, a, and a little bit of um, i don't know empathy behind that well i think it comes with a balance you want to provide constructive criticism and challenge someone to reach their full, full potential where possible and you want to balance sure. that out with genuine compliments sure i, I guess i'm curious how as a leader of a company, how do you carve out time or make sure that's a priority every day? Because I think a lot of leaders I've seen in manufacturing, I should maybe maybe go back to the manager term, managers in manufacturing really get caught up in the day-to-day and they don't have time for not only the strategic stuff, but the things that really enhance that culture. Yeah. Well, the strategic stuff is a whole sub- subject in and of itself. Sure. And probably worthy of multiple one-hour podcasts. Yes. But, um, <laughs> The, uh, the system that we employ for staying in touch and understanding the accomplishments of individuals mm-hmm. is to have uh, periodic scheduled one-to-ones with uh, mm-hmm. between leaders and direct reports. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I personally have uh, maybe about uh, 25% of my time mm-hmm. is, is spent in one-to-one meetings with direct reports, understanding what their struggles are, what their challenges are, mm-hmm. um, and then having a, a robust communication about whether whether it's uh, celebrating their successes um, mm-hmm. or identifying opportunities for further improvement. Usually it's a mix of the both, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you carve out the time? The truth is you just choose to. I mean, yeah. it's it's not unlike anything else. I mean, I, I mentioned, or you mentioned before, that um, I've, I've been involved in CrossFit, and I, I coach CrossFit, and I coach yeah. people for... Spartan races and things like this as well. And when people come into our gym and, and they say they don't have time for fitness, I mean, the truth is that's, it's right. It's BS. Yeah. I mean, am I allowed to say that on a podcast? Oh yeah. Right right yeah you got, the uh, thing about podcasting is you've got this little explicit thing you can hit if you need, uh, if you right. need to. So I don't I, think BS qualifies as hitting the explicit button. Right on. You're so, great. Cool. <laughs> so if you, if you bring it back to, you know, modeling the behavior, right, right. Yeah. You're going to model the behavior that you think is important. What you choose to put on your calendar yes. is what you think is important. Right, 100%. And if you choose to let somebody else dictate your calendar mm-hmm. or you choose to be you know, blown around the wind like a, a plastic bag in the wind you mm-hmm. know, or something like that, then you won't be able to chart out the vision that you specifically want and you won't be able to control it that way. And if you step back at your calendar, you really honestly try to keep your calendar up to date, mm-hmm. go back and look at it, see where you spent your time, yeah. whether you – realize it or not that's what you value Mm -hmm. so if you want to value culture building you have to allocate time to culture building love that and that involves lots of direct uh, interaction but it also involves maybe some company speeches and things like that a mix Mm -hmm. of a lot of different things Mm -hmm. and through that your uh your team will see hey uh, he or she values this time with me Mm -hmm. i should uh Mm -hmm. value the time with my peers or mm-hmm. my direct reports or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully that becomes, you know, infectious. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Is that, is that how you communicate your vision then throughout the company? Like you mean you, one-to-one? You, you mentioned one-to-one, you mentioned company speeches. How do you uh, clearly and consistently communicate a vision? Uh, well, I try to, uh, I try to, go across all those channels. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do produce documentation, um, okay. a lot of it, mm-hmm. but it's not in the form of, hey, here's a spreadsheet for mm-hmm. you know, the financials that we're going to hit. Mm-hmm. The, the financials are, are an important part of the business, and mm-hmm. they're, they're you know, at the end of the day, what power the business. Mm-hmm. But people don't buy from you because you have a good bottom line. Mm-hmm. They don't buy from you because you have a good top line. Mm-hmm. They buy from you because you create products that they want. You service it the way they want, and mm-hmm. you're there for them when they need them, or you provide something they can't get anywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. So our visions are more often communicated in the form of stories yeah, about what the future is likely to look like okay, and what our future is going to be. Yeah. And if you, you come back to, I'm going to use probably lots of athletic, um, you know, corollaries. No, it's perfect. If you come back to, you know, what a, a professional athlete might do, not that I am one, I'm far from it, but, you know, if they're, if they're getting up to do a, a heavy Olympic lift or, or they're, they're getting up to start a, you know, fast marathon or something like that, mm-hmm. they're envisioning their victory. Yeah. Right. They're, they're envisioning a win at that point and they're envisioning uh, accomplishing the best that they can get. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in business, it isn't any different. You have to envision what you want the future to be. Mm-hmm. And you have to share that vision with everyone around you because they're going to help you. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty simple concept. It's just hard to do in practice because egos come into play. Mm-hmm. And what's going to happen, just like it does in athletics, is sometimes you're going to get to that starting line. You're going to envision, you know, getting a PR on your, uh, you know, on your half marathon time or something. Right. And that day is not going to go so well for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and you're not going to hit it or somebody's going to be faster. Right. And that doesn't mean you quit. Mm-hmm. And it also doesn't mean you spend a ton of time beating yourself up. Mm-hmm. You get back to recovery. You make a new plan. You strategize and you get a little better. Mm-hmm. You can't do that in a company or really anywhere unless you have a foundation of trust. Yeah. If within your company – People are uh, politicking mm-hmm. or uh, opportunistically seeking to um, – uh, the founder of the company always used to say uh, he watches out for people who try to uh, uh, raise their bucket by lowering someone else's mm-hmm. is what he calls it. Mm-hmm. If that's going on, you don't have trust. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have trust, you can't have uh, safe visioning mm-hmm. because when it doesn't succeed – Finger pointing is going to start. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, you won't be able to repeat the exercise and learn from it mm-hmm. because there won't be honest learning. They'll be clawing for power structures. Yeah. Have you ever seen the, um, the, uh, uh, the guy's name was, um, Tom Wujek. There's a, it's a <laughs> Ted talk about, uh, the marshmallow experiment. Oh, I've heard of this. Yeah. I'm, With the pasta fill, and the marshmallows. Fill me in. Yeah. I'm trying to remember how, how that goes. Cool. Um, he, he they, he has run these workshops where, I don't know exactly how many pieces of dry spaghetti you take, but it's dry spaghetti and they give them a certain amount of tape and some string and then a marshmallow. And the the goal of this team is to build the tallest structure that mm-hmm. can support a, a marshmallow. And mm-hmm. dry spaghetti is pretty fragile, so it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a hard thing to do. And and he talks in that video about how people, um, you know, they, they spend a lot of time coming up with the perfect design and a lot of times at the end they, uh, they put the marshmallow on top and then just the tower falls, right? Mm-hmm. And if, if my data is not mistaken, I probably, you know, have to, to double check this, but kindergartners outperform, um, uh, <laughs> business school graduates because business school graduates are clamoring to create a hierarchy yeah. during the period of time when they need to be iterating in a non-judgmental environment. Interesting. Uh, I don't doubt that yeah. statistic either. If it's <laughs> not true, I'm hoping it is. <laughs> yeah, the only one that outperformed it was like structural engineers or architects or something. Dang. And his point was like, well, thank goodness because that's what yeah. they're supposed to yeah. do. Yeah, but that's, that's the main <laughs> calling in life, uh, and that's what you're paid to do. You <laughs> get that right. I sure hope you can build a structure. Um, but uh, yeah, it it's that's the iteration. So it's uh, coming up with a concept. It's quickly testing the concept. Mm-hmm. It's allowing that concept to fail, and then when it fails, uh, you know, not trying to take advantage of that situation for your own personal gain, mm-hmm. to learn from that as a team, mm-hmm. and that is really hard for people to do. Yeah, I have, I have, I've seen it before. I yeah. have no doubt what you're talking about right there. Yeah. Wow, there are a lot of different directions I, I could take this part of the conversation. I want to leave the folks with some some tactical information. So a few questions around that. We talked about that foundation of trust. We talked about carving out time like you do with a gym and looking at how you're using your time. And actually, that's an activity I've been doing, not just creating my calendar moving forward, but actually looking back and adjusting what I did with my calendar to see where my time actually went. So I think that's that's a huge piece. But on top of that, you know, it's it's about creating time for the important activities and. I'm curious, how do you invest in your success? How do you invest in yourself? How do you invest in your team's success to keep you guys sharp and cutting edge? Oh, I invest in it. I don't know. I'm trying to figure out how to, how to tackle that, that question. It, it, not necessarily a financial investment either. No, I know. In okay. fact, that's not where my, my head <laughs> okay. went at all. I was thinking I, sh- I should have known we were on the same yeah, page. Yeah, no. How does, it's really about how to allocate my time and my energy, right? Yeah. And, and the financial investment is just one manifestation or it's like one tool right. that you have that you can you can utilize. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think I keep a pretty strict schedule mm-hmm. for myself mm-hmm. personally. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I do to stay grounded with respect to where I want to take the company is um, once a month, I take an entire day mm-hmm. where I focus only 
on evaluating myself against the goals that I set for leadership. Mm-hmm. So there's a spreadsheet I keep and uh, my goals for the year in terms of leadership development, mm-hmm. business goals, but they span beyond that. They're not just about that. They're also about my whether it's my, uh, my, my, my goals in the gym or at home with my family, yeah. my kids, because the, the whole person comes to, to work every day. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's supposed to be, we're supposed to do our jobs. And then we say that this is business and mm-hmm. the, you know, personal and business, you need to keep them separate. But the truth is the whole person shows up and if the whole yeah. person's healthy, yeah. then the business is healthy. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I check in with myself once a month. I grade myself on those goals mm-hmm. um, in a red, yellow, green. I calculate the percentage of goals that I've completed. And then um, I strategize each month for how I'm going to improve it in the next month. Cool. And uh, I've done that now for uh, a few years, about four or five years. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're important days for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really easy to start saying, well, you know, maybe I should blow off that and take that conference call. Yeah. You know, or yeah. like there's that, that big potential customer meeting. Maybe I'll score that order if I mm-hmm. do this or maybe whatever, whatever the excuse is. But this is a long game. Mm-hmm. The, there's um, a, a prominent business speaker by the name of Simon Sinek, and he has mm-hmm. recently been talking about business being the infinite game. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, it's really about how long can you can you stay in? How long mm-hmm. can you keep that energy up? Mm-hmm. So it's. It's so much like a marathon. Mm-hmm. It's so much like a distance race. <clears throat> Wake up every day, have enough energy to tackle the next day. Mm-hmm. Not just, you know, come out of the gate hot and mm-hmm. then, you know, run out of steam uh, after six months, a year, five years. Mm-hmm. Those short plays, nah, I don't think that works in the long run. That's not how you create something that has lasting value. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you can flip a profit if you're lucky, but I don't know. Right. Yeah, those are usually short-term profits that you're flipping at that point. And I don't think that helps people. No, it definitely doesn't. Yeah. I, um, do you have any advice on how people can adopt a longer-term perspective? I know it's a big question, but I'm just I'm just curious. How do we how do we get people out of thinking quarterly, yearly, and thinking five years, ten years, twenty years? I think they got to stop thinking about the goal as the end. Mm-hmm. So we during the during the break, I think we talked a little about. Um, I was using that example of. Uh, you know, somebody wanted to do a heavier, you know, deadlift or Olympic lift or something yeah. like that. And it was, I do, I, I train people for CrossFit from time to time. And, you know, maybe they want to come in and they want to do a, you know, a 400 pound deadlift or, or something like that. And maybe they only do, you know, 300 pounds today. Mm-hmm. You, you have to set these goals in order to create a benchmark for where you want to go. Mm-hmm. But the goal really is connected to some broader sense of what you want to accomplish. Mm-hmm. So what if somebody says they want to deadlift 400 pounds, what it really means is they want to feel stronger. Yeah. Right. So if they just finally work their way up, you know, maybe they make that plan and they break it into sections and they might, you know, six programs across X number of months and they get from 300 to 400 and they do it. They just quit because they did it. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're done now. Or, or was their goal to be a stronger human being mm-hmm. really the goal? So at the start of each year, mm-hmm. in addition to the monthly check-ins, I uh, spend one day thinking about what I personally want to accomplish in terms of growth for my contribution in the world and myself, right? Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of times that's, you know, what do I want to accomplish in a conceptual sense? Mm-hmm. And then I break that down to goals. Right. Those things mm-hmm. don't really change, right? Maybe you want to be a stronger human being. Maybe you want to be a more compassionate human being. Mm-hmm. Maybe you want to be more technically uh, adept or something sure. like that. Each person has their own thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, and then it, it's the activities that they make their goals on a daily basis, a weekly basis, or an annual basis mm-hmm. that helps them continuously fulfill that longer term goal. For sure. And so it means stop just because you break things down into smart goals, mm-hmm. stop pretending the smart goals are the end. Right. They're just the means to the end. They're, right. they're that one program that you do between 300 and 400 pounds on your deadlift. It's that measurable step along the journey. Right. But every time you finish that one, you have to have another one lined up. Mm-hmm. Or if you don't have one, then sit there and line it up. Mm-hmm. But if you don't understand why you're doing it in the first place, mm-hmm. you don't have an intrinsic reason for wanting to accomplish it, Maybe you're doing it because somebody else told you to. Mm-hmm. You're not going to keep it going. Yeah. It's not going to matter to you. 
So that, of course, comes back to why you want to try to attract people in the company that share the belief. Mm -hmm. If they believe what you believe and they share that specific objective longer term, they're probably longer term going to want to make smart goals that Mm -hmm. align with the types of things that you want to do. And they're probably going to come up with new goals that are probably more likely to be aligned with what you want to do. And then you just have a lot of dialogue together. You innovate together and it becomes fun. And so, yeah. Does that make sense? No, it makes makes perfect sense. The question I have on that is you have habits for like yearly reflection. You have your monthly reflection days. Is there a way people can replicate that? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I think that everybody's brain works a little differently. And so mm-hmm. there are there are different tools that work for different people. Mm-hmm. At the at the foundation of it all, if you want to have long lasting uh, impact that you control and direct, you mm-hmm. have to be capable of setting and maintaining habits. Yep, that's a very easy place to start. Mm-hmm. I personally uh, really really love post its. <laughs> post its, all right. And um, that's how I bring my ideas uh, uh, around. So when I'm doing my ideation, mm-hmm. um, I have the habit to schedule that time mm-hmm. and make it a priority. That's yep. the habit. Mm-hmm. And then the structure that I employ, honestly, is to get a, a cheap piece of cardboard mm-hmm. and, I, and I put it up against a wall and then I get a stack of Post-its mm-hmm. and some Sharpies. Yeah. And, if, and you probably walked and saw the, sh- uh, the Post-its on your way up here. I, I notice them every time I come in. <laughs> I, have a, I have a bit of an obsession with Post-its and, and there's people here that love it and people that hate it. But um, what it allows you to do is completely freeform thinking. Mm-hmm. And get lots of different ideas that might seem convergent mm-hmm. and bring them together and see how they fit spatially. Yeah. So that means writing down initially what are those long term feelings mm-hmm. or objectives, you know, be a stronger leader or this or that, uh, th- those feelings that you want to be able to generate. And then mm-hmm. the different goals that could be a priority within mm-hmm. your year. And and then categorizing them. So it looks a lot like a matrix. I mean, I could draw it here, but it's not going to show up on a podcast format. Sure. But, you know, on the <laughs> left-hand side, you got you got the you got those high-level long-term goals. Right. Right. And they're not they're, – those aren't necessarily smart goals. Yeah. They're conceptual. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And then along the top, you know, if you picture a spreadsheet, you know, you got mm-hmm. your, your column one and then you got your top row. Mm-hmm. You got the different buckets of your life. Mm-hmm. You got your leadership – you got your your family, you know. You got your business. Maybe you got your friends. You could decide what those buckets, those important buckets of your life are. But there's only four or five. We're not that. We're not that broad. Sure. And then you assign goals that work for each of those in in your life. So mm-hmm. if you're looking to be a stronger, you know, have you know, be a stronger individual, how can you be a stronger leader? Mm-hmm. How can you be a stronger person in your family? How can you be a stronger person around your your friends? How can you mm-hmm. be a stronger person in the gym or something like that? Um, you know, what does that mean to you? So you, you then create a smart goal in and around mm-hmm. achieving that mm-hmm. specific objective in that category of your life. And from there, you can then just begin to track it monthly. That's where the habits come back in. Yep. So then you have clarity that what you're working on is working towards the things that you want to become. Mm-hmm. And then you just need patience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And maybe a little forgiveness. Sure. I feel like you've got a blog post inside of you just waiting to come out to outline this Dan Voigt process to, <laughs> Maybe. to long-term thinking. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're, we're nearing the end here. I guess what's, you know, you mentioned Simon Sinek earlier. I feel like we've talked about him a couple times. When, yeah, he's fantastic. When, when you, and, uh, you and I have, have met before. What's a resource you'd recommend to people that are looking to be better leaders, better building better cultures within a company? Uh, there's a lot of different ways to... Uh, tackle that but i mean the first thing is uh to get out there and learn from other leaders in broad mm-hmm. different environments so mm-hmm. uh me I, I got involved in some p or ceo uh, advisory groups and got to to get to know ceos of other businesses and mm-hmm. understand how they function and that really exposed me to uh broader perspectives you know mm-hmm. uh, uh people that run um uh, you know, very different businesses, whether it's, you know, telecommunication or construction or, mm-hmm. or banking or mm-hmm. um, different types of manufacturing. How do they think? How do they approach it? And, um, so get out there and, and find some kind of a program that allows you to explore the range of uh, human talent, skill, and leadership styles and stay open to the idea that there is no one template. Mm-hmm. 
uh, it's an infinite uh, number of possibilities of things that you can achieve. And so it's carving out the things that works for you. Right. There's a leadership style for every personality type. Mm-hmm. And there aren't really personality types. There's just personality spectrums, right? Mm-hmm. So there, there are leadership styles that you can develop. And you can develop multiple leadership styles that are used in, in different environments. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you need to have an authoritative style. Sometimes you need to have a, you know, um, uh, you know, a, a consultative style. Sometimes you need to have an empathetic style. It depends on the situation mm-hmm. and what it needs. So leadership's a science and 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 uh, uh, an art, and it also means uh, getting out there and seeing what people do, learning from that. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. I, well, I love I love what you brought up about getting out to other industries as well, because yeah. especially for a, a audience that's primarily manufacturers listening to this, it's sure. really important to see how other people are doing it. Cause really most businesses have the same problems and challenges they're oh, trying to address. That's absolutely true. <laughs> but, well, they're all human at their mm-hmm. core, at least in the, in the C levels or even the managerial levels, the, the problems are all generated in my opinion, almost exclusively <laughs> by human interactions. Yes. Yes. It's, it, it's miscommunications. Mm-hmm. It's, um, and so, you know, just because you, you know, you, you work in, uh, you know, manufacturing, you know, this widget or that widget or, or, or whatever, there's still an amalgam of people. What's one of the last books or podcasts that has really made an impact or that you thought would be valuable for people that are on these journeys to check out? Oh, man, I, I try to read a book a month, so that's not uh, an easy thing to sure. answer. I, I've got in front of me The Five Dysfunctions of a Team uh, by uh, Patrick uh, Lencioni. Okay. I've used that book um, heavily with our team to stay mm-hmm. uh, you know, aligned with what makes for a healthy team dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, in that book, uh, in The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, uh, Patrick lays out five things that can go wrong within a team. And he mm-hmm. does it in a storybook fashion. And have you ever read the book? I actually have. This is the first time I'm seeing this okay, one. You need to read it. Maybe I will. I'm just going to give you that copy. But um, <laughs> love it. it. It the first whole beginning of it is um, it's written like it's a, it's a story. It's not a typical business book. So it mm-hmm. it's this you know about a CEO that steps in and there's some problems within the culture and so you know there's each person has a name and they they have you know narrate meetings and things like mm-hmm. this. It, it's not like reading a self help book. Sure. At least not in the beginning portion of it. And uh, so it demonstrates. The five dysfunctions that come up, and and they happen to be, in this case, absence of trust, uh, fear of conflict, lack of commitment, avoidance of accountability, and inattention to results. And so as a team, you you come together and you recognize when those dynamics are at play. Mm -hmm. If any one of those dynamics begins to erode, Mm -hmm. and at any any point in time, one team is you know, higher on one scale or maybe they're, they're great on absence of trust, but they're, you know, really screwing up on, um, fear of conflict. So they, yeah. they trust each other, but they're not willing to have constructive conflict. Mm-hmm. That happens all the time. Um, that then, then affects the, the team. So re- reviewing that and working on that with your leadership teams, yeah, I think is a pretty changing thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, personally, I just finished reading, uh, David Goggins book, uh, can't hurt me. Uh, if you okay. know who David Goggins is, he was, a Navy SEAL, um, uh, mm. endurance athlete. Um, I've read different Navy SEAL authored business books before, but I don't think I've come across that one. Uh, he's got a he's got a specific <laughs> uh, uh, grit uh, yeah. and 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 power uh, with respect to um, how he approaches life that I think uh, really uh, you know helps maintain focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talks about callousing your mind and staying uh, willing to do things that make you really uncomfortable. Got it. Um, and if you're wanting to model behavior or induce change, expect to be uncomfortable socially. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so uh, and not, that shouldn't be that hard to do, but for some reason it is for us. So, y- you know, you might want to, you might want to get ready for that. <laughs> All right. Well, I will have both of those books linked up in the show notes. Dan, is there anything you wish I would have asked you during this interview that I haven't yet? I don't know. I mean, we could have talked about my technologies. We could have talked about what's going on with the company, but we sure. to no, we, we, on, yeah. that's, uh, that wasn't the last question. That is, that, that was, that's just to fill in the gap before Man, I got, I got to plug my stuff. <laughs> well, too, exactly. Right? Yeah. No, uh, well, that's, you know, as we wrap up, Dan, what is, what is next for Blendtec? What are, what are you most excited about this coming down the pipeline for you and your company? Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited about the way these, uh, cloud-based technologies are becoming, uh, 
readily available mm-hmm. um, and and easily uh, adapted for our types of equipment. We've developed mm-hmm. a, a cooker cloud platform that does uh, some pretty advanced uh, evaluation of um, how effective a production room is in the mm-hmm. food space. Very much designed kind of the way an athlete might use Strava for, you know, optimizing their running or mm-hmm. their, um, you know, triathlon performance, breaking down those sections into, um, you know, discrete benchmarks mm-hmm. and allowing for that iterative improvement that, you know, we were talking about with goal setting, but then applying it to the production floor so that you can really drive continuous improvement mm-hmm. as a business. We're really excited about that. And I don't, uh, I don't see that that type tech of technology as exists in the food space right mm-hmm. now. And so we think we've, uh, we've really broken through on that. So we're pretty excited about that. Cool. Well, I love all the parallels you've drawn throughout the episode from fitness to business. I will link up to Blend Tech in the show notes as well. Again, that's B-L-E-N-T-E-C-H. In the meantime, Dan, thanks so much for being on the show today. You bet. Thanks. And for those of you listening, we'll catch you here again on Manufacturing Happy Hour next time. Stay innovative. Stay thirsty. Hey, thanks so much for listening, and a big thanks to Dan and the team at Blendtec for making this episode happen. They truly have a fantastic team over there and run an impressive operation, and I highly recommend you check them out, especially if you're in the food and beverage manufacturing space. Dan mentioned a lot of great resources throughout the episode, from books to TED Talks, and if you're interested in diving into any of that further, I have links to everything we discussed over in the show notes at manufacturinghappyhour.com. More than anything today, I want to thank you for tuning in to our first episode. Whether you're running your own manufacturing business or you're just interested in getting a few tips to up your game and enhance your career, if you thought this episode was valuable, please share it with a friend or coworker or consider leaving us a review on iTunes. In fact, that's my big call to action for you this week. For young shows like ours, the best thing you can do is leave us a rating and review on iTunes to help get the show on the map. It can be as short as one sentence, and you can do it from either your phone through the Apple Podcast app or on iTunes. And if you do, please leave your Twitter handle or something like that with the review. I will be reading all of these reviews pretty closely, and I'd love to personally thank you on social media for taking that kind of time. One final thank you to our sponsor for today's show, Audible. If you're interested in snagging a free audiobook, and I did double-check, every book mentioned on today's show is available through the Audible library, then head over to audibletrial.com slash happyhourpod to snag your free audiobook today. That's it for this week, folks. There are plenty of big things ahead here on the show. In the meantime, please hit us up with your reviews on iTunes, and we'll see you back here on Manufacturing Happy Hour real soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.